John chapter 17. On Sunday morning, we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And uh, we will pick things up this morning, beginning in verse 6. Our Savior speaking and really praying, he said to the Father, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they've received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world. Again, it doesn't mean that he never prayed for the world. On the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's not praying for the world specifically in this prayer. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now, I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name, and those whom you have given me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Let's pray together now. Father, how we love your word. Have it brought to life by your Holy Spirit. To cause it to come to life and helping us to understand you better. To understand Jesus better. To see the wisdom, Lord, of of your ways to see your goodness, Lord. And we pray that all of the reasons that this prayer and this portion of Jesus' prayer, all of the reasons that it's recorded for us would be accomplished in our lives as your people today in the ministry of your Holy Spirit as the teacher in this room. Teach us, Lord. Help us to hear your voice through your scriptures this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We remember that Jesus is praying in the presence of his disciples on the night before his crucifixion. And I think significantly for us and very, very unusually for him, uh, this prayer of Jesus was recorded for us. He prayed it out loud, as we saw last week. It wasn't common for him, at least in terms of his ministry recorded in the scriptures. He didn't pray out loud often, and when he did, it was relatively brief. And so here we come into John chapter 17, and he heads into a very, very long prayer, comparatively speaking, and uh, full of amazing content. 
And Jesus prays the prayer out loud in front of the disciples, obviously because, number one, he wants them to hear it. He wants them to know that them to know and us to know that he prays for us. He ever liveth, the Bible says, to make intercession for us. But he also wants us to know what he prays for us. And that's one of the fascinating things about his prayer is that it's wonderful in in so many different ways. But one of the ways is it reveals to us what is super, super important to him about our lives. You think about the literally hundreds of things that he could have prayed for us in this prayer that he doesn't pray. It doesn't mean that he doesn't pray them elsewhere. They're not important to him. But in this prayer, He narrows his focus down on about four or five main things that are super important to him for us as Christians. And he prays those about those things. And why else would the Holy Spirit record this prayer in the Gospels except that he wants us to understand that Jesus prays for us and what it is that is most important to him related to our lives, where we need intercession from him the most in in our lives. Last week we saw how Jesus, one of the things that Jesus prayed for related to us was that the Father would be very actively involved in our sanctification, in our holiness, in making us like Christ, that the Father would do that. It is a privilege to be holy in this world. Sometimes, it, I mean, the word holiness increasingly, people get some kind of a picture in their mind that it's some kind of a bondage or some kind of very severely limited life or a terribly restrictive life. And it isn't. It's the greatest life in the world and it's the most privileged life that a person can live. I don't say that whether a person comes to know the Lord early in their life or whether they come to know the Lord later in their life, that they have a greater or lesser appreciation of holiness. But I can say that I think, at least as it relates to people that come to know the Lord the way that I did, you spend some time out in the world before you come to know the Lord. And you are for some period of time being fashioned by the world. It fashions our thinking. It fashions our feeling. It fashions our doing. It fashions our speaking. And any time someone has been out there and been fashioned by the world for some period of time and then becomes a Christian and all of a sudden begins to experience God Almighty now undoing all of that and now creating a holiness that looks like Christ in our lives, nobody who has the Spirit of God in them will ever complain about that or consider themselves to be restricted in any way. It is the greatest life a person can live. Jesus moved on in terms of praying to the Father for us that we would be sanctified to this morning in the passage that we look at, that the Father would keep us as Christians in this world. The word keep there in verse 11, and I want to reread verse 11 for you. Jesus said, now I am no longer in the world. He was going to ascend into heaven shortly. But these are in the world, us as Christians. And I come to you, Holy Father, and then notice that word, keep, keep. 
through your name, those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Clearly, Jesus's prayer reveals that as Christians, we are in need of supernatural keeping. We are in need of God keeping us. Whatever he's doing in our life, whatever he's called us to do and to be in this world, what we are up against requires the keeping of God to occur in our lives while we're living in in this fallen world. The word keep means to watch over, to guard, to protect, to preserve for a purpose or until a suitable time. So, in other words, Jesus is praying to the Father that he would guard over us, that he would watch over us, that he would protect us, that he would preserve us. Now, I don't know how that makes you feel as a Christian, but I suspect that you are very, very much like me. It makes me feel very, very good to know that this is a prayer that Jesus has prayed for us, a prayer that the Father will keep and to know that we are a kept people. And we are kept in this world by a keeping God. You cannot, as Jesus has done in his prayer, for me and you to know as Christians, you simply cannot commend anyone into sure hands, into safer hands, into more protective arms and hands than the hands of God. And that's what Jesus has done, is he has commended us into the safekeeping of God Almighty. Hip, hip, hooray. Now, notice in verse 11, and very important to notice, that Jesus calls on the Father not only to keep us, but calls on the Father to keep us, as he said to the Father, through your name. The name of God the Father refers to his nature and his character in the Scriptures. When we name somebody in, today in the United States of America, for the most part, we find a name that we like. Uh, we find a name that maybe a relative that we like has that name, and we want, that na- we want to honor that relative by giving our son or daughter that name. Or there's a friend, and we do the same kind of thing. And so it's just kind of a label that gets attached to somebody in this culture that we answer to for the, uh, the rest of our lives. But in a Jewish culture, they didn't think of a name as, as a mere verbal identification, In Jewish thinking, then and today, the name represents the character and the nature of the person. So when you would talk about God to them or talk about Jehovah or Yahweh, it wasn't in their mind that this was like a theological term that came to their mind. Their mind would immediately explode forth into uh, what they understand from the scriptures this God to be. And so what Jesus is declaring here is he is calling on the Father to use the full resources of who he is. All of his nature, all of his character, all of his power, all of his knowledge in order to keep us. I mean, that's just extraordinary. The hands that we have been delivered into by Jesus in this intercession. It is because this God is keeping us 
that we can be at rest. This is a keeping that we can rest in. This is a keeping that Jesus intends us to rest in. Our keeping is as sure as the nature of God, as sure as his muscles, as sure as his uh, power, as sure as his love, as sure as his grace, as sure as his wisdom. Now, notice that we can be confident, too, in verse 12, that just as surely as Jesus kept the disciples of the apostles, so, too, the Father will keep us. Jesus didn't lose a single one of those disciples, and they were a handful. You know, when you look and you read about the disciples of the apostles in the scriptures is to realize that apart from God, they're very much like us. They needed someone to keep them, someone to take care of them. And for Jesus' three and a half years of his public ministry, he never lost a single one of them. And Jesus is calling on the Father not to lose a single one of us. Now, sometimes if you sit here and, and we read and Jesus knew that we would be studying this prayer. And uh, when he would say, you know, you delivered these disciples to me, I've kept all of them and now I deliver them to you, that someone might think in their mind, wait a second, what about Judas? I mean, you're telling us that the Father's going to keep the, the disciples or the apostles as well as, are going to keep us as well as you kept the, the, the disciples, but what happened to Judas? So he, he anticipates some confusion on our part. So he elaborates, talks about the son of perdition here, referring to Judas. And Judas, of course, is going to, the very next day, he's already betrayed Jesus and sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. And he will lead the officials to arrest Jesus in the Garden of of Gethsemane. And so Jesus himself raises the subject of, of Judas and so that we wouldn't be confused by him in terms of our security. And essentially, Judas was numbered among the twelve physically, but spiritually he never was a genuine believer. He was not one of those given to Jesus by the Father. As the scriptures had prophesied of the betrayal of one of the disciples, the scriptures prophesied that one close to Jesus, a friend of Jesus, would betray him and betray him for 30 pieces of silver, Judas fulfilled those prophecies just as God knew. God didn't make him do it, but God in his foreknowledge knew that Judas would do it, and Judas was fully responsible for that. And so Jesus is revealing to us here, as he talks about our security, that Judas was in an entirely different category from someone, from everyone else, including us, as Christians. And so as a Christian, you can't look and say, yes, I believe that Jesus prayed to the father that he would keep me. But what about Judas? Am I a Judas? Am I going to find out that God is going to lose me too? And Jesus essentially comes in and says, if you're a Christian, don't bring Judas into the equation. You're not only if you do so, not only are you attempting to compare or apples and oranges, you're attempting to compare apples with rye bread. They're two entirely different things. Now, 
why are we in need of being kept by God? I mean, what do we need to be kept uh, in the middle of? And Jesus answers that question in verses 14 and 15. Why would he pray that we need to be kept except there is some danger in this fallen world to us as Christians and danger to us that is unique to us in in the human condition. Notice in verse 14, he tells us that we need to be kept or protected by God in the midst of the world's hatred or fallen man's persecution of us as Christians. And I want you to notice, and it's very significant, that this is not speaking of a hatred or a persecution that arises because a Christian is being disobedient to God's word or being goofy or being uh, uh, needlessly offensive in life or just doing some kind of a crazy thing. But it is a it is speaking of a persecution that arises because a Christian, uh, because Jesus said, I have given them your word. It speaks of a hatred. It speaks of a persecution that is Bible related, that is word related, a persecution that the world will direct against us because unique in the world, we have made the Bible the standard for our doctrine and our practice. We've made the Bible the standard for what we think and what we believe. We've made the Bible the standard for what we speak in the life that we live. And when a person gives the Bible that kind of authority in their life, it's going to produce an entirely different kind of human being from the kind of human being that is produced by the wisdom and the ways of the world. And so we are, by virtue of obeying the word of God, we're going to stand out in this world. You don't have to do something crazy to stand out. Just obey the word of God, have it dominate our thinking in our lives, and we will automatically stand out because what God is doing in our lives through the word of God is something entirely different from what the world is doing in the lives of men and women that don't know God yet. And many of us understand the difference, the significant difference between the two. And so the world is we're fashioned by the word of God and we are a minority in the world always will be. The world will take note of us as a minority that is different from them. So, again, we are physically present in this world, but we do not share the world's values. We don't share its definitions of right and wrong. We don't share its priorities. We don't share its attitudes or its definitions of God or mankind or heaven or hell or really anything. And so there is this difference between the two. And the world hates the revelation of God's word. It hates what the word of God has to say about us as sinners in need of a savior. It hates that God is so dogmatic about right and wrong. It hates the fact that salvation is narrow. Doesn't matter to them whether it's true or not. To them, wide is always better than narrow, but it is not in the case of salvation. 
And so it despises the fact for the most part when the Bible declares that there's one way to be saved. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so it hates the revelation of God's word, whether in its purest form of of the book or the Bible, or they hate the revelation of God's word as it is loved and obeyed and lived out by a Christian. And no one who lives this kind of a life where the Bible has that kind of place in their lives no one will escape persecution as a result of it. Again, we don't have to put goofy, uh, you know, cone-shaped hats on our head or do anything to get the attention of the world. All we have to do is just live obedient to the Word of God and make stands where the Word of God tells us to make stands, to refuse to compromise where it tells us not to compromise, and we will incur persecution on some level. I don't define how great the level will be. We happen to live in a country that has a Christian heritage where uh, where we receive a lesser persecution at this point in time in our history than other nations around the world who have no Christian heritage and have never known a revival in their midst. Those Christians face greater persecution than we do. But nobody escapes persecution. Paul wrote at the end of his life and writing to Timothy, and he said, he said, yea, and all those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You don't like to pull that up out of the daily promise box on the, uh, you know, kitchen table, but it's a promise from the word of God. And it's a badge of honor, really. It really is. The longer you walk with the Lord and the longer you walk in this world, the, the more unconcerned you are about what the assessment that this world is making of us. Who cares? It's collapsing on every front. And now they want to opine related to my life or your life. And how significant is it when their own house is in such disorder? But every one of us will suffer persecution for making uh, that kind of of a stand uh, for God's word uh, in the world. And so we need keeping because the world hates us because we give the word of God that kind of place uh, in our lives. And as a result, it as we obey the word of God, it produces a different kind of life than the world produces. And as a result of that, then the world is forced to either give the word of God the same place in their life that we have in ours or to persecute us in an attempt to silence our witness. I think of that. One of the great examples in the Bible is in the Old Testament book of Daniel, where you had Daniel and, and three of his friends, one by the, three of them by the name of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, were their three names. And they were taken captive from Israel by the Babylonians because of the sin of the nation of Israel, taken captive to Babylon. And God's favor was on their life, so great upon their life, that Nebuchadnezzar, who was the emperor of uh, over uh, uh, Babylon, looking for qualified people, he put all four of them in very high positions in the Babylonian government. And Nebuchadnezzar, one night he had a dream. 
And he called, he woke up and the dream troubled him and he woke up the next morning and he asked that all of his wise men would tell him the dream and what the interpretation was. And the wise men all said, well, just tell us what the dream was and we'll give you the interpretation. And he, in essence, said, I'm elaborating a little bit. Listen, I didn't just get up out of the turnip patch and become uh, the emperor of the greatest world ruling empire of the day. By falling for something like that, how do I know that you're giving me the correct interpretation of my dream unless you tell me the dream that you don't know and the interpretation? They said that's impossible. Nobody asked that of their wise men. He said, you're toast. If you not really, but I mean, that's in the new living, super uh, ridiculous uh, version of the Bible. But he said, you're dead. You either give me both of those. or I'm going to hack you up in little pieces in your whole household and I'll find someone who can do this. Well, Daniel, to make a long story short, Daniel was given the revelation of of the, the dream and the interpretation of the dream. And he proceeded to give it to Nebuchadnezzar. And he said, Nebuchadnezzar, God gave me a, a revelation of the dream that you dreamed and the interpretation. And in fact, God told me what you were thinking before you fell asleep that night, before you even had the dream. You're thinking to yourself, what's going to happen to this kingdom after I die? This great Babylonian empire, what's going to happen when I die? And you saw a great image before your eyes in in that dream. And the image had a head of gold and it had shoulders and arms of silver and it had a belly and, and thighs of bronze. It had legs of iron and then feet of iron and clay. And as you were beholding that great image, Nebuchadnezzar, a rock came out of nowhere that wasn't fashioned by human hands. And it struck that image in the feet and the entire image began to crumble and fall in a heap and a great wind blew through until every single bit of dust of that image was gone. And then that rock grew into a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And here's the interpretation of it, Nebuchadnezzar. You are a great king and you are the head of gold over the Babylonian Empire, but your empire will not go on forever. It will be followed by an inferior empire characterized by the silver of the shoulders and the arms. And so the Babylonian Empire was followed by the Medo-Persian Empire. And that empire will then be followed by the Grecian Empire, characterized by the bronze. And then the Roman Empire, characterized by the iron. And then in the last days at the time of Jesus' return, I'm giving some New Testament flavor to it at this moment, but there will be this great rock which speaks of the Messiah will come in into the world in human history at the time of that final world ruling empire, hit the image, not in the head, not in the chest, not in the waist, not in the legs, but in the feet. All of man's government is going to pile in a heap. God is going to blow all of it away and establish his kingdom. We know it as the thousand year reign of Christ in the world. And so that was the dream and all and, and the interpretation of the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar says, well, let's make give him a zillion dollars or whatever in order to reward him for it. Well, Nebuchadnezzar gave that some thought and he immediately or somewhat immediately began to embark on a project, kind of an art project for his sculptures. And he had the artisans of, uh, of the uh, Babylonian Empire make a great image of gold. 
90 feet high, 9 feet wide. Not solid gold, but cast in gold in, in, in the outside of it. And he was going to take that image and he was going to um, uh, unveil it to his entire kingdom. And basically what he's doing is he's fighting against God and he's fighting against the interpretation of Daniel. And by making the entire image of gold, he is rejecting the history that, that Daniel gave to him and was basically saying, no, the Babylonian Empire will never come to an end. So they've got this whole thing shrouded and he calls for all of the rich people and all of the powerful people, all of the politicians, all the high officials in his government to come for the unveiling of this great idol, this great image. And everyone was forewarned when you hear the music play and that image is unveiled, everyone is to bow down to that image. Well, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were present in that invitation and present in that crowd. The music plays a sea of people bow down before that image. And there's three guys that got to be feeling pretty naked at the moment. There's only three people standing among the hundreds and thousands of people, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they would not bow before the image. Why? They would not disobey the word of God. This was not something that they came up with. To bow down before that image would have been the violation of the first two of the Ten Commandments. And God said that they were not to engage in idolatry. No one is, but they certainly weren't as Jews. So by obeying the word of God... In contrast to the rest of the world, they stood out like sore thumbs as a result of it. Now, we may not stand out as Christians in so dramatic a fashion as they did by simply obeying the Word of God. But you will. But you will. And I will too. Within our families, in the schools that we attend, in the workplace that we work in, in our neighborhoods, wherever it might be, we don't have to try and stand out. All we have to do is obey the book and time will reveal that our thinking and our lives are about something way different than what this world is about. Well, this whole thing infuriated Nebuchadnezzar. Listen, you don't rule the whole world before you get a little proud and you don't like any kind of rebellion. So he calls the three Hebrew children before him and says, now, listen, here's the deal. The music goes, you bow and and I'm going to give you another chance. And they said, or I'm going to throw you into a furnace of fire. And they essentially said to him, you might as well throw us in the furnace of fire. There is no way we're going to bow down before that image, which infuriated him all the more. So he had the furnace heated seven times hotter than it had ever been heated before. And he had Babylonian attendants take the three men and run hard toward the opening of the furnace and then launch them into the furnace. The furnace was burning so hot that the men who approached it to merely throw them in all died. And as they're thrown into the fire, Nebuchadnezzar thinks to himself, good enough, good riddance, I'm done with them. And then as he looks into the fire, he sees the three of them walking around. Their clothes aren't burnt. They did nothing. They're just walking around. And more than that, he realized he saw that there was a fourth one that was walking with him in there. And the fourth one was like the son of God. 
And I'm convinced that Jesus himself met with them in that furnace. Anytime we get thrown into a furnace like that for sta- of persecution by mankind for standing upon the word of God, Christ meets with us in private in, in a deep way where we come to know him in a way that we wouldn't otherwise come to know with him. We have a fellowship with him that we wouldn't otherwise have except for that persecution. And so here they are thrown into the fire. And then God here is an example. He kept them not from the fire, but he kept them in the fire. And that's the very thing that Jesus is asking the father to do here for us. He said, I don't pray that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them in the world. That's a keeping that we need. One day we'll have the keeping of not being in this world anymore. But now we need a keeping that will keep us through whatever we face as Christians in the world. Now, here's the problem with keeping so often in our minds. When we think of God, not everyone, but we can all be a little bit tempted by it. We tend to be one dimensional when we think about that God is keeping us or that he's supposed to keep us. And we think that. If he is a keeper of our lives, that he is then responsible to keep us from all difficulty. But that's not what Jesus is praying for here, because that's not realistic for our part in human history. What we need is a God and what God promises and what Jesus is praying for is that God would keep us through everything that we would face in this world. So he does he does keep us from things think we probably won't know until one day we're in heaven if we care about it at that point in time. But he does not cease to be our keeper because we are put in difficult circumstances and then he uh, Uh, expresses his keeping by keeping us through the difficulty. And these illustrations related to him being a God who keeps us through things, we could spend the whole morning talking about that. Think about how God kept Noah and his family. Think about how God kept his children, the children of Israel, as they were fleeing Egypt and the Egyptian army was following after them. He kept them by parting the Red Sea. We think about how he kept David time after time, not out of difficulty, but through difficulty, how he kept Jeremiah, how he kept Daniel in the lion's den, how it is that he kept so many times we read about Paul, his life in jeopardy over and over and over again. And yet God kept him through all of that persecution and opposition How he did the same thing for Peter, the apostle, and so many others in the scripture. And so he keeps us and he keeps us through the persecution and the worst persecution that the world can dish out against us. The persecution that comes against us for being faithful to his word. But he also keeps us notice in verse 15 We need to be kept and we need to be protected by God in the face of the attacks against us by the evil one, by the devil. The devil comes against us with his temptations, doesn't he? And he's always working. He's always trying to destroy our lives. That's what he's called is a destroyer 
in the scriptures. And so he brings temptations in order to cause us to fall. Well, I I would love to have a keeping from all temptation, but that's not our portion in this side of heaven. One day it will be. We need someone who can keep us from temptations that are not God's will, and God will do that. But we need someone who will keep us through temptation in this world. And how does the Father keep us related to the devil's temptations? One of the ways is by always making sure, and he's unfailing in this, always making sure that in any temptation that the devil brings before us, that we'll have one of two things from God. He will either give us the supernatural power and grace to stand victorious in that temptation, or number two, he will show us the way of escape to run out of, uh, of that particular temptation. And Paul wrote as much to the church at Corinth, and boy, did they face temptation. You read, you read Romans in the early three chapters of Romans and Romans is just talking about the wickedness of mankind and all of these things. He's writing it from Corinth. All he had to do was just open up a window and look out on the streets. These are Christians in deep temptation. And Paul wrote and said, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. The Father keeps us not only through the devil's temptations, but also through his spiritual warfare that he's allowed so often to bring against us. Sometimes you think as a Christian you get into warfare and and you say, wow, I have never been in this kind of warfare before. This is incredible. It just can't get any worse than this. And then three months later, you find out it can get worse than this. And the reason that we can withstand the three months later is but because of what we learned and what happened between us and God and the three months earlier. But the devil does bring significant warfare against us. But Jesus prays that God would keep us through that, which means, as we see all through the scriptures, that however great the warfare is that the devil brings against us as Christians, God will always add greater grace and greater power and greater whatever we need than what the devil is launching against us, greater resources to be able to not only withstand it, but to be found standing victoriously at the end of the warfare. There is no reason that any of us would still be continuing to walk with Jesus Christ today if it were not for the fact that when Satan is allowed to attack us, that God brings even greater resources to bear upon our life to withstand it and to more than withstand it. I think of the example of Job in the Old Testament related to this. Some people try, they try to avoid the book of Job. So I don't want, I've got to the book of Job. So they'll say this, maybe you've said it too. I'm not making fun of it, by the way. They'll say, I'm reading through the Bible and I'm coming to the book of Job. Would you pray for me? 
I always experience spiritual warfare when I hit the book of Job. Well, the book of Job is wow. I mean, that is incredible spiritual warfare that he was in the middle of there. And it always helps. I don't say for all of us, but for most of us, certainly for me, the book of Job puts any suffering I'm in the middle of in immediate perspective. But here is Job. And he's a child of God, righteous man, wonderful man. And, and Satan comes and appears before God in heaven. And God begins to do some sanctified boasting related to Job. Have you considered my servant Job a blameless man, etc., etc.? And Satan says, yeah, he follows you because of all the stuff you give him. I mean, you bless that guy like crazy. He's got cattle. He's got herds. He's got houses. He's got all kinds of stuff. You take that stuff away from him, he won't walk with you. You think people would walk with you if you didn't give them stuff? You've got to pay people to walk with you. And God knew better than that about Job and about us. And so he gave the, the devil room to say, he told him, you go ahead and you take physically, materially, anything that you want from him. Just don't touch his body. And the devil took and stripped all of his wealth away from Job. And Job continued to praise the Lord. And here is the devil in front of the Lord in heaven once again. And God does some more sanctified boasting related to Job. We may not want him bragging on us up in heaven, but it blesses his heart to the degree that he can brag on us. And he said, have you considered my servant Job a righteous man, etc., etc.? And he said, yeah, he keeps serving you and worshiping you even though you took everything away. But, you know, you touch his body. You touch his health. You take that health away from him and he'll curse you. He won't. He will not follow you unless in in ill health. And God said, you can touch his body, but you cannot kill him. And Satan was given that room and Satan did everything short of killing Job in terms of of touching uh, his body. But the devil could not do to Job anything. Beyond the line that God permitted him to to uh, to go to. And it's the same thing as it relates to our lives. The Lord sets that line there and then he keeps us related to that line. I think it's very important and it was very helpful for me to realize this early in my Christian life. And you know it, but just to hear it, you know, is in this way, I think is is good, at least it. It's always been helpful to have the Lord bring to my remembrance through the years. It's important to realize that the devil is not the opposite of God. He opposes God, but he's not the opposite of God. Because being opposite implies equality. And the devil is not God's equal. The devil is the equal on the fallen side of an archangel. He would probably be the equal of Gabriel, the archangel, or Michael, the archangel, but he is not the opposite and the equal of God. The God that is keeping us is eternal. He's omnipotent. That means he has all power. That's a lot of power. He's omniscient. He knows everything that there is to know. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere all at the same time. And then what I love maybe more than everything is he's self-existent. 
It's fabulous. The devil is none of those things. He is not in the same league as God in any kind of way. And so there's no comparison between the God who keeps us and the devil who seeks our destruction. Someone may say, why in the world does God allow the devil to attack us at all? If he is able to keep us from in addition to through, why does he... Why does he, you know, just not cut off all of his attacks? Because the devil's attack serves the Lord's purposes at times. When the devil is allowed to attack us and we're word based, it causes us to run to God. It forces us to go deeper in our relationship than the relationship has ever been. And that's a good thing. He works it against the devil so that the attack that the enemy brings against us forces us to become deeper in God, more spiritual in God, more knowledgeable of God. It must be very, very frustrating to be the devil. That every time he attacks us, every time he attacks us, God turns the thing around And by the time he gets done with his spiritual attack and God has kept us through the attack, we are more Christ-like than we've ever been. We know God like we've never known him before. We have a faith in God that has been refined and more pure than it ever has been before. The Bible says that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. How frustrating and miserable I think as miserable as life can make, the devil can make for us at times, it must be many times more miserable uh, for the devil to see God do this over and over and over again in our lives, to see his devices continually foiled and made to serve the Lord's uh, purposes in our life. How sure is our keeping by God? One of my favorite verses related to this is Jude, verses 24 and 25. The Holy Spirit declares through Jude concerning you and I as Christians. Now unto him, speaking of the Father, who is able to keep you from falling. Excuse me, there's a hallelujah in my heart. Okay, I'm back. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling. And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. One day we're not only going to be in heaven, but we're going to be presented there faultless. And not only are we going to be thrilled to be in heaven, God is going to be just as thrilled to have us there in heaven. That's the keeping power of our God. Jesus has prayed a prayer that the Father is going to be faithful to in our lives. The confidence that Jesus wants each one of us to possess in our Christian lives is this. That because of his intercession for us, for our keeping, that we are able to live in a complete confidence that our Heavenly Father will keep us through any and all 
persecution of man against us and against every warfare and device of the devil, that he will keep us through all of it and one day deliver us into heaven. And the Apostle Paul possessed this confidence, and I think that it was important that he did. You think about all that he faced in his Christian life and service. Read the book of Acts related to Paul. All of the persecution that came against him by ungodly men because of his faithfulness to the word of God. The spiritual warfare that came against him on a regular basis. At one time in a physical form where he likened it to a tent stake being driven into his body as he sought the Lord for relief from it. All the things that he faced in his life and his ministry. And yet in all of it, he was confident that God would keep him through all of that in, in this life and deliver him safely into heaven. I think about, as he writes in his final letter to Timothy, he puts it this way. He said, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. I fought the good fight. I've finished the race, I've kept the faith, and finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Confident in the, faith, in, in the faithfulness of God to keep him through everything that he would face in life, and then one day be kept by God right into heaven itself. But someone might look at that and say, well, well, if God is such a keeping God, then why in the world do we die? Does he does he falter? Does he fail when a Christian dies in his ministry of keeping us? He doesn't. One of the fascinating pictures of this in all of the Bible is in the book of Revelation, chapter 11. Where you have two witnesses. One is Elijah. We don't know who the other is. It's Moses. But anyway, <laughs> nobody really knows who the other one is. And they've been given the ministry by God for the first three and a half years of the tribulation period in the city of Jerusalem to preach to the Jews who have been deceived into thinking that the Antichrist is the promised Christ and to preach to them that Jesus is the Christ. And as the Antichrist and his others try to destroy them and, and to stop their ministry of testifying to Jesus, we're told that they'll have supernatural power, I mean fire to come out of their mouths and destroy anyone that would come up against them. They have the ability to pray, and for the three and a half years of their ministry, there won't be any rain in that uh, area of the world. They'll be have powers over waters to turn them to blood. They'll have power to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire power empowered by the Holy Spirit to stand alone, literally alone against the whole world, against fallen man, against the, the devil himself possessing the, the Antichrist, everything that the world and hell could throw against them. They withstood all of it. It's only when their ministries were over are over 
when they have finished saying everything that God intended to say through them, did everything, done everything that God will call them to do, that the Antichrist will then be allowed to make war against them, overcome them and kill them. But it doesn't happen until they finish their ministries. It doesn't happen until God's work through them is complete. God can call us to serve him in some very dangerous places in the world. Right here in Modesto, California, in the United States, all around the world. There is no safer place for any Christian than to be absolutely in the place that God has called us to be, obeying his word and serving him in that place. I think of how wonderful it is in this example of these two witnesses that will witness in the future tribulation period. One of the lessons of their life is to realize that we are indestructible until our ministries are over. And then when we have said the last thing that God has intended us to say for his glory in this world, when we've done the last thing that he's intended for us to do for his glory in this world, Why in the world would he, who understands the beauty and unparalleled glory of heaven, keep us here one more second? And so he will take us then into heaven. But the keeping doesn't stop there. He will be faithful to deliver us from this body, walk us right through the veil of death and into the glory of heaven. I think about Stephen when he was dying, that early deacon in Acts chapter 7. And as he was being stoned to death, Stephen, is, he was calling on God and he was saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep or he died. Because of Jesus' intercession for us and the Father's faithfulness to keep us, that is our confidence. We are a kept people until our ministries are over. And then when our ministries are over, he will keep us straight into heaven. The Bible talks about man living in bondage of the fear of death. And without this confidence... In our lives as Christians, and only a Christian can have this confidence. Without that confidence, we are constantly thinking about death, in wondering about death, in bondage to the fear of death. But for us as Christians, whether it is at the hands of the persecution of mankind somewhere in this world, whether as an object of some act of spiritual warfare, or through some sickness, or through some so-called accident that might occur in our lives, that takes our lives, whatever that might be or whatever we're facing, we face it with the knowledge, my life is indestructible until my ministry is over, that He numbers our days, and that we will only leave this place to enter into the glory of heaven once our ministries are over and when he chooses that timing. And that is a great, great confidence that is ours. And it comes out of a knowledge of knowing that we are kept by 
God. And I want you just to take a moment in the privacy of your heart as I do the same. To let that great truth. We're indestructible until our ministries are over. That the Lord numbers our days to influence whatever our thinking is and whatever our feeling is in the middle of what we find ourselves in the middle of. There are no accidents for us as Christians. We are kept by an infinitely powerful and wise and eternal God. That is who is keeping us. It's intended to make a difference and produce a confidence in our lives. The knowledge of that may it make that difference in our lives. Let's stand together and we'll pray.